I just want to say to survivors that there really is hope. It really can get better. It seems like it can. It seems like it never will. But if you work at it and talk to other survivors and do the reading and and every day, work on it every day. Hi, thank you for joining me. I'm Hecate, and this is Finding Okay, a podcast for survivors of sexual assault and abuse. I'm here today with author Annie Margus. Annie is a survivor of childhood incest and is doing beautiful work in the world to break the silence and end the taboo against talking about this kind of abuse. In 2012, she and a group of survivors started a helpline that allowed adult survivors around the world to connect with each other and share their stories. Annie's new book is called The Ugliest Word. It's being released on October 15th, 2020, and will be available on Amazon. If you visit her website, theugliestword.com, you can get the first few chapters of this beautiful book for free. And now it's time for... Trigger and content warnings for this episode include the following. Incest, child abuse, pedophilia, sexual assault, trauma, and mention of past suicidal ideations. There's nothing graphic, but the subject matter might be upsetting to some. Please check in with yourself and make sure you're all right to continue. Are you okay? I am okay. I've worked on recovery for a lot of years, and I have to say there is a light at the end of the tunnel, and I am there. Wonderful. That's good to hear. (laughs) (laughs) I'd also love to hear a compliment that you've received that you've never forgotten. This book will sit you down. That was the compliment. (laughs) Oh, wow. That's a beautiful one. That's definitely a powerful one. That's what you want to hear when you write something. (laughs) And it did. I can can verify that. It definitely sits you down. What is your favorite color or favorite color combination? And what do you associate with it? Mm, I think I'd have to say aqua. And the odd thing is it was the tile in my grandmother's kitchen. And that is my memory. And it's my favorite color. That's beautiful. And it reminds me of the ocean as well. That's very poetic. I'm imagining like this ocean of tile in a nostalgic space. Ooh. You know, I had a doctor ask me that once. That was like one of her first questions was what was my favorite color? She was an MD. Yeah, it reveals a lot about a person. Huh. Yeah, I'm a, I'm an artist. Chromotherapy is uh, is definitely a thing. Color is so important to us, even if we don't realize it. If I needed to summon you in a ritual, what five things would I need to place as offerings at each point of the pentagram on the floor? Have to be uh, something to write with. That could be a laptop or a, an iPad or a piece of paper and a pencil. Any of those would work. Um. We need some dirt from the garden because I'm a big gardener. Hmm. And what else? I collect costume jewelry. And so perhaps some costume jewelry would be good. I also play handpan. 
which is an instrument. So that could go in there. And maybe some music to sing, because I sing in a chorale. Hmm. Do you have a favorite song to sing? Boy, I was just listening to the Carmina Burana, which is one of my very favorite songs. When my chorale sang it a few years ago, I was just listening to us sing it. So that's one of my favorites. Nice. How long have you been singing with the group? Wow, 10 years. Oh, wow. That's yeah. beautiful. On and off. I don't sing every season. It's a lot of work. Hmm. And we're singing through the COVID, but we're not really singing, but we all meet on Zoom and our director gives us lessons. So it's very productive. That's nice that you're still able to meet, but do it safely. Yeah. Zoom is an amazing thing. <laughs> it is. And it's definitely, uh, <laughs> it went from being like, oh, this is nice that we have this to everyone needs this now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But that's uh, I know a lot of groups are um, are suffering. So I, I'm glad that that your group is able to connect and, and use that effectively. What are the three most important parts of your self-care? That would be sauna, water, walking. Nice. Do you take walks every day? No, but it's a goal. I really enjoy walking. Do you just walk around your, your neighborhood or your home or? I do. I do walk around my neighborhood because it's a really nice gardening neighborhood and I'm a big gardener. So I really enjoy just because I don't walk too fast because I'm looking at the gardens. <laughs> I know exactly I also what you go mean. Down, <laughs> I go down to the beach and walk too. It's not very far. Oh, beautiful. You're on the, uh, the West Coast, correct? California? Correct. Near, near Los Angeles. The West Coast beaches are very different from the East Coast beaches. I, I grew up in California briefly as a child, so I have many early childhood memories of of California. And uh, and those beaches are, you know, you got that nice smooth sands, and then you go to the East Coast. I don't know if you've ever been, but sharp shells yeah. and rocks. <laughs> yes, and it's colder. Oh, it's freezing. <laughs> <laughs> So going to the beach is a very different experience on the East Coast. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty lucky. Yeah. How's the sky? Is it blue where you are? How the how are the fires? And are you safe? I am safe. The sky is blue today and it was yesterday. However, it's been very gray and ashes have been raining on my garden. So it's, oh I am affected by it. I've, I've, I usually do my writing outside in the garden, and I was unable to do that for a while because of the ash rain. Mm, ash rain. Those are some words. Oof. Well, I'm glad that you're, that you're safe and that the sky is blue. I hope there are blue sky days ahead. So we are here today to discuss your book, The Ugliest Word. I have to tell you how it began because it really was a process of years. Mm -hmm. I started by writing a poem and that was back when I could barely even think the word incest and, and barely tell myself that it had happened. But I met someone who told me it happened to him and I wrote a poem and I, and I showed it to him. So that was like my first step. And then later I wrote a short story and was able to show it to someone. And then 
I wrote a play for the theater. That was my first big project, and I self-published that, and I gave it to a client of mine who is a movie producer, and I said, what about doing this as a movie? And he read it, and he gave it back to me, and he said, you'll have to rewrite it. It has to be about the childhood, because the play was about adulthood. Mm -hmm. So I rewrote it, and I gave it back to him. And he said, oh, no, I couldn't possibly do this. So it was too much for him. Mm. However, I found another producer who it was not too much for. And I've been working with him on producing the movie. And after having written the screenplay and working on the movie and not getting very far... I decided, you know, I've always wanted to write a book. Why haven't I written this as a book? And so I did. I changed it. I took the screenplay and and, uh, formatted it into a novel. And this all took about, hmm, 15 years, maybe. But the the play was published in 2013, I think, or 14. What was the name of the play? say a few words. A lot of what that was about does appear in the book. It's basically about the end of the abuser's life. Yeah, that was definitely a powerful scene in the book. Was that kind of a a cathartic, kind of wishful thinking for you? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I wish I had been able to (laughs) to get (laughs) revenge in any way. I, I never did get any revenge, except maybe not I mean, I was never nice to my dad because I hated him so much. So I suppose that was kind of a revenge. But I think every survivor kind of fantasizes about getting even, whether that's moral or not. (laughs) I know I did. And I still do. I still have fantasies about getting even. When I'm feeling really bad, that helps me. It's it's a hunger for for justice, and even if we don't quite understand what justice would look like, there's that that desire, and I I try not to judge it, and I definitely have those fantasies too sometimes. <laughs> I thought it would be important for the novel that I have that for the survivors who are reading it, so they can have the catharsis. Yeah, I was I was clapping silently while while, while reading. Were you? <laughs> A little bit, gleefully. (laughs) I was going to ask this later, but um, (laughs) deadpedophiles.com. I kind of pouted when I typed that into my my browser window and it didn't come up as a thing anymore. But you you had something called deadpedophiles.com for a while. I did. It was a website. Yeah. I thought it was a good idea. And when I tried to share this with other survivors, they didn't think it was a good idea at all. Oh, <laughs> but I, what? what? <laughs> Go ahead. I, I, I honestly, I think it's time may have come. <laughs> <laughs> I think it might get a better reception these days. But I'd, I'd love to uh, if you would be willing to share what that was. Sure, and maybe I should put it back up. It was an invitation to survivors whose abusers are deceased to go to the cemetery and put a sign on the grave that says dead pedophile and take a picture of it and then send it to me and I'll put it on the website. And that'll just identify people as pedophiles. 
And then if they wanted to write anything about being a survivor, I would put that up too. But I never did get a picture. I didn't know anything about how to, you know, advertise a website. I didn't know anything, you know, I just made the website. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot more conversation about pedophilia going on right now. And uh, I think it's entirely possible that this is an idea whose time has come. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. So you had you had said something about sharing it with a therapist and and their response was, I think maybe we need to work on your anger. (laughs) That's right. My therapist said that when she saw dead pedophiles. Yeah. Too much anger. Because I had (laughs) written I had written a piece you know, beside the pictures. I don't remember what it was, but I remember it was really powerful and angry. And Mm. (laughs) that's what she responded to. Yeah, because the because I mean, by itself, the idea is really powerful is just creating a space for survivors to name their abuser and identify their abuser, which is something that often gets taken away once the abuser is dead. And that can I know happen very very easily with uh, with child abuse, where there's that huge age difference. Yes. A lot of the time, people who were abused as children, it can take them into their adult years to really figure out what happened to them. And by that time, their abuser could be dead. There's no space for catharsis or for naming them or having any kind of reckoning. And so I think creating that space for that for that reckoning, even if it's just posting a photo on the internet, I think that's a pretty powerful idea. So you had mentioned that you had talked to a lot of survivors before writing this book. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I started this phone conference line for survivors in league with an anonymous 12-step program for survivors, so it was under their wing, and people could call in and talk to other survivors. And it was it was structured in a meeting style, so we had readings about the problem of incest and how it affects us, and then each person would get five minutes to tell their story or share about whatever they needed to share about that day. And no one was allowed to comment or respond in any way ever to what people say. And so it's completely safe. And that's, that's what it was. And, and I ran that line for four years and I heard hundreds, maybe thousands of stories. I don't know how many. Yeah. That's a beautiful thing you had going. Do you know if it's still going? It is still going, yes. And I have some friends who who tell me about it and that it's still going strong. How much of you and your story are in this book and and in the character Lark? Uh, A lot and a lot not. I was a writer as a child, a young child. I always knew that's what I wanted to do, and that's what Lark wants to do. My abuse started much younger than Lark's, but that's really hard to see, so I didn't write that. I was very musical, and what else is like me? Can't think of anything else that was specifically from my life. Most of the incidents are from stories that I heard, or or I just made it up in my head. Mm-hmm. What would you say to Lark or to yourself as a child if you could time travel? 
get out of here. Mm. I, I would tell her to get out. Yeah. Don't know where I would have gone, but <laughs> do you have any advice for listeners who are healing from incest? The thing that helped me most get to where I am today was talking to and listening to other survivors on a daily basis. It desensitized me to the topic. At first, I was just horrified, you know, in every fiber of my being, even to think about it. But listening to people and realizing how common it is and realizing that it wasn't just me, I'm not alone, made me really release the shame as if it were my fault. Was it my shame? It wasn't my shame, and I have released it. I no longer feel ashamed of the fact that I was victimized by that. But I lived in shame a long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree that finding spaces where you can connect with other survivors and hear their stories and hear someone say me too is, is a really powerful part of healing. How can people go about connecting with survivors and seek out those spaces? Do you have any ideas? Well, they can go on the internet and do a search and they'll discover survivor organizations. Mm -hmm. I think if you just typed in incest organizations, well, that might not be good. Child abuse, you better type in child abuse organizations and they'll, they should come up. And there are a lot, there are some that are um, kind of religious in a way or at least spiritual in a way. And then there are others that are not. And uh, so people can choose what suits them. Yeah, that's a great point, because I, I know that for some people, religion is a part of their abuse and can be kind of triggering for them. Exactly. And so they'd want a, a real secular group. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these groups have phone meetings now. They probably have Zoom meetings now, I bet. Very true. And yeah. uh, that might even be better than a phone meeting. More healing. Yeah, it can it can be intense sometimes to go and be in the same room and so that's something that I think could be the in-person thing I think I mean COVID aside but the in-person thing can be really healing for some people and be just way too much for some people so I think that's a great point that you can even pick and choose whether to be in a room with somebody mm -hmm. yeah. I started off in a room in the the, the rooms they call it I had been to a play about incest, and after the play, a panel came forward from one of the groups and was there to answer questions. And that's how I discovered that there were groups that you could go and talk to people, and that was a wonderful thing. What was that like connecting with survivors for the first time? Oh, gosh. Scary. That's all I can think of is that I was scared. And I, I remember saying things that I'd never even said to myself, you know, things about suicide ideas and different things like that. I ended up talking about in these person-to-person -person groups that I couldn't have before. And, and I really couldn't have friends. Most of my life I had no friends. I didn't socialize until I found the groups. And when I did, I had a Thanksgiving dinner for the people in my group, and it was a wonderful thing. It's beautiful. I'm so glad that you found them. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows where I'd be without them. I think that's a really great point, though, that it is scary the first time you seek that out and connect with survivors, but ultimately it's it's so powerful and beneficial. 
Yes, it is. I would also recommend to uh, survivors that they read. There are a lot of really good books out there on on, uh, being a victim and surviving it and helping yourself. That's a part of the the shame and the secrecy is is thinking this isn't okay to talk about, and that perpetuates all of it and is a part of the the trauma. Yes, and I think the secrecy is one of the things that harms us so much. Why are we keeping a secret? Because we're ashamed. Mm-hmm. We don't need to be ashamed, and we don't need to keep it a secret. And that's why I'm publishing with my name on it. I'm not ashamed anymore, and I'll tell the world I was a victim. Well, thank you for doing that. Thank you for for helping to break the taboo. And this stigma is it doesn't help anybody. It just helps them, the abusers. That's all. That's, that's the only exactly. favor it's doing. And that's and that's a part of it too. As as so many so many uh, survivors were were told to keep it a secret as children, yes, yes, and then that kind of festers. My uh, the group that I was in for a while they they had a saying. It was the taboo is not in committing incest. The taboo is in talking about it. That's a powerful point. We got to break that taboo and talk about it, and that's really my. Like mission, my goal is with this book is to get people talking about this problem because it's so ubiquitous all over the world. It's incredible how how common it is. I you know I I have this podcast and even I didn't realize how how common it was until I you know was reading your book and and looking at those stats. It's like people think children are for sex instead of to be children and be humans and grow up. Mm. There, there's just two completely different messages, which is, you know, the taboo, which is, which is saying the complete opposite. And then there's what we're actually doing to children in our society, you know, behind closed doors. Right. And it's just two completely different things. I'd like to take a moment to share some statistics and information with you. One in five boys and one in three girls will be sexually abused before their 18th birthday. These stats are cis-normative, so I'd like to add that about 50% of transgender and non-binary people will experience sexual abuse or assault at some point within their life. That number increases if you are a person of color. Nearly 70% of all reported sexual assaults occur to children ages 17 and younger. Children who live with a single parent with a live-in partner are 20 times more likely to be victims of child sexual abuse than children living with both biological parents. One of the most important things that you can do to help end this is to start talking about it. What's the most important step you took in your own healing? Probably writing that first poem. Mm. Break, breaking through to to talking about it, you know, communicating about it for the first time. It was hard. Yeah, I think the first time I started talking about it, I think it was a poem as well. Writing is really important. Even if mm-hmm. even if you've never tried it before, it's a powerful thing. I recommend that 
everybody write their story. Everyone, because for me, it was so healing. The writing was so healing. So I think everyone should. Even if you never show it to anybody. Exactly. Exactly. It's yours to write it, to burn it, to hide it, to share it, whatever you want to do. But certainly writing it helps you own it. Exactly. What do you wish more people understood about child abuse and incest? That it's in the home. It's in the home. It's in your neighborhood, inside of a house where people live. It's everywhere and it's in the home. With the stats, it really just breaks it down to it's completely impossible for you to not know someone who's experienced incest and it's completely impossible for you to not know a pedophile. And that's upsetting, but it's important to know. Yes. So you sought treatment later in life. Was it scary beginning therapy as an adult? Yes. I I didn't start it until I retired from teaching. I, I got really, really sick and I kept working for a few years, but I couldn't. I had to retire. So when I got home from that, I said, now's the time. Now I need to just sit down and, and deal with this. And so I went to a therapist and told him. He, he didn't help me much. I've been through a lot of therapists. It's not easy to find the right person to work with this on. Because it's such a secret, I think, a lot of them don't have experience with it. Mm. But I do have someone now, he does cognitive behavioral therapy with me, and I find that helpful. And I don't even go regularly anymore, just... Uh, you know, just when I'm needing to. Do you remember what it was that made you feel like you had found the right fit with a therapist? When he gave me good advice about doing something, <laughs> I was I was all wrapped up in this activity that was going to embarrass me if I did it. And he said, don't do it. <laughs> mm. and it never occurred to me that I could get away with simply not doing it. And, <laughs> and uh, that's when I knew. it's a it's a good point (laughs) it's a it's an important thing to to realize though that um i i i've talked to a fair number of people who have never who have never been to therapy or who left or who have said therapy just isn't for me and that's possible therapy talk therapy just isn't for some people and there are other options now with a you know EMDR therapy and brain spotting and those are fascinating um but it's entirely possible that somebody could just be with the wrong therapist if it's not a good fit try somebody else that's a that's an option that's a it's definitely a common thing that happens it's, it's such a personal connection it's an incredibly intimate space and it needs trust and you deserve to have someone that you trust to talk to. So I'm glad that you found that person for you. Thank you. I am too. And I would recommend that survivors ask other survivors who their therapists are. That's probably a good way to find one. Mm, Good point. What do you think people can do in their own lives to help stop childhood incest? I think they can talk with one another about it. If people make a commitment to start talking about it, just talk with your best friend and say, hey, you know, I heard about this and we should talk about it because it's happening out there to a lot of people. And then just spread the word. And and 
you know, in Me Too, people started talking about rape. They never did it before, but now they're talking about it, and hopefully nobody's raping as much. That's my hope. My hope is that when people are talking about it, the secret will be out, and then pedophiles will stop. At least some of them will. Or will know what to look for and know that it's happening. <laughs> yeah. Just won't be Learn the about what the, what the signs are, especially if you're a teacher, you know, or somebody involved with children. Exactly. You know, that if you talk about it and learn what the signs are and realize it could very well be that, you know, if a kid's having a big problem, it could very well be that. Yeah. It's an extremely intense experience to grow up Catholic and then be an unwed mother. It sounds like it was really difficult for you. It was emotionally very difficult because I had an uncle who was a priest, an uncle who was a monk, and an auntie who was a nun. Oh, wow. So, and and everyone in the family was very religious, very church-going, very devout. And, um, and then there was me <laughs> with a child, not married. For a while, I didn't go around anything family. But then eventually I did. I started going to grandma's house again and and being who I was a woman with a child yeah. and they they got used to me yeah it sounded like your um your grandpa was particularly supportive yes my grandpa was yes he was a gardener like me did you always love gardening and connecting I, that way with the earth I did always love it I have memories of being a preschooler out in the garden with my dad and it being a wonderful thing. That's probably the only good thing about my dad that I, I remember was that he was a gardener too. And we would grow vegetables and fruit trees and things. I'm glad that you have a good memory. So yeah, all my life. And then when I started college, my first major was ornamental horticulture. I wanted to be a landscape designer. Mm -hmm. But then... I realized eventually that I would rather be a writer with a garden than a gardener who writes. <laughs> and I figured I'd get more written because gardeners get tired at the end of the day. <laughs> mm, it's true. <laughs> so you have a garden at your place? I do. I do. What do you grow? It's mostly ornamental. I have mm. a waterfall. It's about four feet tall that I built myself with the help of my family. And it's under an enormous pomegranate tree, and it looks like a little secret grotto in there. It's just beautiful. And I have wisteria and roses and lots of uh, milkweed for the butterflies. Yay. Yeah. Oh, that sounds absolutely gorgeous. And that's where I do my writing on the patio table next to the waterfall. Oh, that sounds like heaven. Yeah. It keeps me calm. Yeah. Oh, wow. I'm so glad I asked. <laughs> <laughs> You're painting mandalas and you write and you garden. It sounds like you have a pretty amazing, like healthy, thriving, creative life. Would you say that that's an important part to healing for you? Absolutely. I'm very creative. And when I was teaching all those years, I felt stifled. I felt very stifled creatively. 
And I'm so glad. I'm so glad I had to retire with illness because eventually I felt better. It took a lot of years. And it gave me time to do this, to be a writer and to sit every day and actually write. And that's what I do. And I just love it. I can't, I'm working on my next book already. Oh, are you comfortable talking about it? Sure. I have, well, actually, I have two books going. One of the books is Figments from Anland. And Anland is what I call my garden. I'm writing about gardening in the time of COVID. Mm. And it's just observations of each plant and its history and stories about my life that relate to that plant. So it's basically just little diary entries about gardening. Mm. I don't know if it'll be good. I have another one called Fingering Death. And it is an autobiography, fictional autobiography, told in terms of the people I've known who are dead now. And so it's a collection of short stories about wonderful people and how they died. Those are some intense projects. Yeah. Do you tend to focus on one thing at a time or do you just kind of hop back and forth depending on like what's feeling alive to you? I'm focusing on the gardening one right now and I've left the other one aside for now well because I felt like well COVID's going on now I better write it now because COVID will be over soon and then Mm. it won't be a good book anymore (laughs) (laughs) yeah I think a lot of people are um are kind of either settling into gardening that always meant to or they're discovering it for the first time or they're kind of transforming their idea of what it is in this Mm -hmm. in this new climate so do you write every day no like walking it's a it's a goal but I don't succeed no most every day even on the weekends I write because Stephen King writes seven days a week yeah never read it but he wrote that book on writing and isn't something he said in there that the whole thing like oh you have to write every day and uh, and that's something that artists are, are told as well is you have to paint every day. And I think there's sometimes the danger of feeling like if I don't do that, then I'm not really I'm not really a writer. I'm not really a painter I can easily get some imposter syndrome. So I like to hear from other creatives about what their process is actually like, you know, what what works for them. I think hearing from different sorts of people who are doing things in the world, who are creating things and and hearing that different people create differently and uh and that however it works for you is okay well I love thinking about you writing in the most beautiful garden I think I've heard of in a long time (laughs) (laughs) I'll send you a video of my waterfall I have one oh that would be amazing I would love to have a waterfall or some kind of water feature it's it's pretty wonderful it's been my dream I even have water lilies in it oh in, in the pond yeah blue ones oh those are one oh i'm obsessed with blue and blue lilies especially oh so how did you get into um to painting and the rocks you know i don't remember exactly what instigated it but i have one son who lives with me my younger son and he started bringing me home canvases and paints and so i started painting on canvases, and I wasn't any good at it at all. I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. So I started watching videos, and then I see these videos of rock painting. And I thought, oh, well, I used to do that when I was in grammar school. I used to paint rocks. 
And so I got some rocks out of my yard <laughs> and started painting them. And I'm just really enjoying it. It's something I look forward to at the end of the day. It's my reward. Hmm. Do you put them back in your garden when you're done or keep them in your home? Well, I've only started this about three weeks now. So I only have maybe five so far. Mm -hmm. And they're all in the kitchen on the plate where I can show them to everybody who comes over. <laughs> Not that anyone comes over. <laughs> <laughs> New world. Good point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. We have a place out on the patio where we have a socially distanced uh, little table and chairs set up that's six feet apart and so we'll have masked guests over and drink tea standing very far apart yeah i've been seeing painted rocks show up all over my neighborhood i walk my dog every day i think rock painting is something that has kind of been kind of blowing up in the middle of covid when everyone was yeah finding creative projects and there are a whole bunch of people that started painting rocks and then hiding them or displaying them along the sides of the roads. Like New, New England, we have tons of, of rock walls just everywhere because the ground is mm -hmm. just full of rocks. That's the only thing. If you, if you build anything or have ever built anything on this land throughout the ages, part of that process involves digging up a whole bunch of rocks. And so we started building walls with them and this and so mm -hmm. you just end up with them scattered throughout the landscape dividing up houses that don't even exist anymore and they're all along the streets and along property lines and uh and so there are these beautiful little a lot of like animals that are painted on rocks hiding oh. in in rock walls that you'll just they'll they'll just surprise you or or they'll be sitting on a stump somewhere or they'll be hidden like you know in some plants and uh and they're just they're all over the place and it's this really beautiful kind of magical whimsical side to covid that yeah is is kind of uh weird to talk about but is really beautiful and i've really been enjoying it i i have heard of that here as well that people mm -hmm. are are hiding rocks and then you find them on your walks and i think i might do that I'll, I'll think of a place to put one and see what happens. Yeah, it's been exciting. Maybe I'll put my email on the back of it. Ooh, that's a good idea. Then they can tell me who they are. That'd be cool. Yeah, I think um, I think I saw you had like an Instagram handle. If you put your uh, Instagram handle, then they can like send you a picture of your rock or something and let you know who they are. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, social media is a great way to to connect with all these little these little things like especially hiding and finding things mm -hmm. that's a that's a big thing that's been happening with social media and, and a way that people have been using it to to connect with each other i like that personal side to that as well instead of just throwing an instagram handle out into the the void of the internet like doing something as personal as creating an art object and then hiding it in the world and then how kind of like special and personal it would be to find that yeah, I would love to find one. Me too. Now I want to find it. <laughs> <laughs> what would you say if someone is kind of, if they're a survivor and they're hesitating about whether or not they want to read something like this, if, if they're worried that it might be too triggering for them? 
Yes, I I understand that feeling. I have purchased books that have sat on the shelf for months to years because I've been afraid to read them. Same. Um, I, I would say that there is nothing depicted that's like in your face. You don't see any sexual abuse going on. It happens, but you're not seeing it. And I think that makes it an easier read. Uh, it's a short book, and people have told me that it's a quick and easy read. So even though it's on a, a tough subject, it's not that off-putting to the average reader because there's not the detailed abuse. Yeah, I I would agree with that. I would say that it isn't. While it is dealing with a heavy subject, it isn't graphic. Uh, I think it was very sensitively written and very poetic. Thank you. Yeah, it was it was a beautiful read. It was it was it was hard, but it was beautiful and powerful. And I'm really glad that you're that you're doing this, that you're putting this out there and that you're yeah, sparking this this conversation, this conversation that is well overdue and has to happen and as hard as it is to have it, it will make the world a better place. It's hard to say the word incest, you know. In in my conversations with people, they almost never say the word. They always change it to molestation or child abuse or something. It's such a taboo mm -hmm. word. That's true. Even Microsoft Word wants to replace it with innocuous things like incense, you know, or something <laughs> insect. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> Doesn't like the word. Thanks, autocorrect. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything that you would like to say i would just want to say to survivors that there really is hope it really can get better it seems like it can it seems like it never will but if you work at it and talk to other survivors and do the reading and and every day work on it every day so that you become desensitized to the very idea of it and write about it. Write your story. Do you have any advice for someone who's maybe never written at all, who's never tried any kind of creative or autobiographical writing? Do you have any advice for someone who's new to writing? I think this is a good idea when you're not sure what to write. You just sit down and start describing where you are. You say, okay, my desk is brown. The lights are on. And then as you're writing, you're writing, look, there's words on the page. And then the story <laughs> starts to come out. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, that's a good tool. Thank you. <laughs> what do you do when you get stuck, when you have writer's block or you feel stagnant or kind of stuck creatively? Do you have any you tips? You know, that, that never happens to me. Oh, I, I, I know I have this creative <laughs> flow it's it really honestly is I sit down at the computer and it's like something is flowing into my head and out my hands I don't know where mm. it comes from you know I know it's my brain doing it but it doesn't take conscious effort on my part really it's not planned I'm interested when people tell me, oh, I like that symbolism or, oh, I like that metaphor. And it's like, hmm, you know, I didn't know I even did that. You know what I mean? It's I don't intentionally integrate elements to it. It just comes that way. That's beautiful. That's a very special gift. Yeah. 
it wasn't always this way. I think it's because I have peace of mind. Mm. I remember hiding my writing for years. I would hide it. I wouldn't show it to anybody. And I didn't want my husband or children to see it either. So it was hidden. Everything I wrote, which wasn't much. I didn't write much over the years, but I was afraid of it. Not anymore. Were you afraid it wasn't going to be good or what was behind that? I I was afraid of what I was communicating. Hmm. I was afraid that, that, that someone would think, oh, your, your ideas are bad. Your ideas are wrong. Hmm. And they would judge me for what I wrote. Hmm. I don't have those feelings now. I'm glad. I remember them very well. I remember hiding a poem under my mattress. <laughs> do you remember which poem it was? Yeah, I do. It was, it was a poem that eventually was written called Trees. And it was about a tree and about how long it had lived and what it had lived through. It was a kind of a rhyming poem. That's actually something I think about quite a lot is trees and how time works for them and what their lives must be like and the things that they've seen and how they must experience everything around them. It changes and they're still there. Yeah. And I I wonder if, you know, with how long they live and how still they are, if it, if it's, I just wonder what that experience is like. It must seem like everyone is moving so quickly around them, yeah. like ants or something. I don't know. I'm very curious about that that tree experience. <laughs> I bought the best book recently. It's called The Oldest Living Things, and most mm. of them are trees. Mm. And they're, they're like 9,000 years old and and older than that even. I am it's writing great book, that pictures down. and stories about each tree. I haven't really dived into it yet, but I've looked a little bit at it. And there's one in Riverside, which is close to me, so I'm going to go see it. It's 15,000 years old. <laughs> Does it have a name? It's a creosote bush. Ooh. Yeah, it's just a very common plant in our deserts. But this particular one is an enormous circle. And so they gr- they die off in the middle as they grow. So that the, the new growth is on the outside. And so there's this enormous circle, 15,000 years. And it's just got a little fence around it. So nobody will drive their recreation vehicle over it. Are you familiar with Pando? It's uh, an aspen grove at Fish Lake oh. National Forest. And it's the heaviest known organism. So it's an entire forest that is one organism. Yes, that is in the book. It is in the book, yes. I forget how old it is, but there are photographs of it. Yeah, Pando, yeah. Yeah, I'm so fascinated by that. That's so beautiful. I think you should read this book. I think so too. Yeah, Yeah. as as you were saying it, I was just like writing it down on my notepad. I'm like, yeah, that's going to (laughs) happen. Yep. You know what uh, else I have? My very favorite book right now is called The Songs of Trees by George David Haskell. Hmm. And it's a beautifully written story, story of a tree. He goes to a tree, hangs out with it for a few months, and he writes about it. Hmm. Beautiful book. These sound like really amazing suggestions. And I also, uh, <laughs> I love that they're really beautiful and inspiring books about trees that could potentially replace the kind of 
really problematic book about a tree that we all grew up with, which was The Giving Tree. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that one? I do. I've seen it floating around social media is somebody rewrote that book to kind of rewrite it with healthy boundaries, with the tree asserting healthy, emotional, psychological boundaries, Mm -hmm. where the part where the boy comes back and is asking, like, is it okay if I just chop you down and take the wood? And the tree's like, hang on. No. And and it's just just sort of like, I've done this and this and this, and this was all okay. However, if I let you do this, that's not good for me. It's not good for you. It's not good for anybody. This is all unhealthy. And here's what we're going to do instead. And I think like the boy gets married and they start like an apple company or they start making like apple jam or something and uh-huh. just just this you know this bizarre like trailing story of the life that they all live together instead and that none of it would have been possible if the tree had been cut down and mm-hmm. just that and I, I just really loved the retelling of that story because it wasn't until it was retold that I realized hey yeah that's a book about giving beyond that is allowing someone to like take too much and it's making that kind of a heroic and beautiful story when really it's it's not a great message it's not a it's not really a healthy message and I I I just really um (laughs) I'll have to find that again and uh and share it with you because it was it was a pretty charming retelling of that and and also like really good to look at those those childhood stories that that sometimes teach us the wrong things you know I always thought that story was about motherhood about Mm. how mothers give their lives for their children and it always Mm. made me sad I never saw that aspect of it that's really powerful are there any books that you would like to recommend for survivors that have impacted you in your healing? Sure. Courage to Heal is a good old standard. It's been around a long time and it has a workbook that goes with it. I went through that in the beginning of my healing. Hmm. The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel Vanderhoek, I think it is. Yes, that has been on my list for the longest time. Yeah, it talks about how our bodies keep the score of all of the abuse we we experienced, and it, it shows up in lots mm-hmm. of ways. <laughs> uh, let's see, where's my shelf? Here it is. I've got After Incest by E.K. Wolf and Trauma and Recovery. That's a really good one. Trauma and Recovery. Judith Herman. And Radical Acceptance, it's not about incest, but it's a good Mm. recovery book. Great name. I know the writer Peter Levine has several good books, too, but I can't think of the title. Do you have a favorite book? Oh, a favorite book. Or a favorite author? I do have favorite authors. At this moment, I am holding a statue of Charles Dickens in my hand, a little two-inch statue, to... uh, He's my little calming agent here. And Dickens is probably my favorite, although he's really tied with Shakespeare. And um, I'm really fond of Mark Twain as well. Those are my favorites. I've got lots and lots of favorites, but those are my top ones. Any favorites by them? Oh, 
everything, <laughs> everything by them. I was reading Dickens when I was in grammar school. I used reading as a way to escape. So I went to the library and read absolutely all the children's books. And they started giving me some of the other books like Dickens. And I started reading them. And uh, I even read the Shakespeare plays. I doubt that I understood them. But, um, but I read them. I understood Dickens, even though it is kind of difficult language. And I want to be just like him. He used to tour and speak. I want everyone to talk about it. Just start talking about incest, childhood incest specifically, mm -hmm. uh, because it's just so common. And if we start talking about it, you know, you may discover, oh, that happened to me, a friend may say. And then you can be supportive of them. And once that person says it happened to me, perhaps that will advance their healing. So talk about it. Do you have any advice on starting that conversation? That's a really good question. I'll have to invent an answer. I don't have one. <laughs> How did, well, what about you? The first time that happened, I think you had mentioned, was like after the play in the group. Mm -hmm. After that, like in your in your daily life, how did you continue that conversation outside of that like safe space of survivors? It was it was very difficult to talk to people in my life about it, um, especially face to face. I could hand people something I've written about it. Mm. I think that would be the way that I opened the conversations was always to give people something I'd written about it and then we would talk about it. Mm. I would rather write about it than talk about it. It's more comfortable for me. <laughs> yeah, I think whether it's writing or something else, potentially like having something that you're doing that centers around it. This, this is something that happens for me is it's uncomfortable or the way the way that I end up talking about being a survivor in my daily life is talking about this podcast because I'm involved with this because it's a project that's taking a lot of my time and my energy and and because I'm involved and excited about it it'll come up in conversation and I'll say you know oh well I'm working on this podcast what's it about well it's a healing podcast for survivors of sexual assault and abuse and now I just outed myself but I feel much more confident and comfortable having the conversation from there and it definitely frames everything for them and they can get shy and run away if that's where they're at. But um, certainly that's, <laughs> it, it works as a framing device mm -hmm. that, that feels uh, more empowering and, and less uh, just vulnerable. Yeah. Instead of just coming out and saying, oh, hey, by the way. Yeah. Apropos like, of nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you need to know. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming. It has been wonderful getting to talk to you and hearing more about your process and your life. Yeah. And just what you're up to. Thank you. And it's been wonderful to talk to you. And I hope to get to know you more in the future. That would be wonderful. And I'm very excited for the release of your book. Thank you so much for listening. The Ugliest Word is available on October 15th, 2020. Annie would love to hear from you. She can be reached by email at Annie at TheUgliestWord.com, and she can be found on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the handle TheUgliestWord.
she invites you to friend her on Facebook as Annie Margus as well. It's a beautiful and powerful book, and I hope you'll give it a read. Please write in with feedback, listener questions, or episode requests to podcast.findingokay at gmail.com. Let me know if you're interested in joining me on the show. I'd love to have you. Finding Okay is crowdfunded and paid for out of pocket. Anything helps. You are the ones helping me make this happen. Thank you. A link to the GoFundMe can be found on the podcast website, and I post links routinely on my Facebook page. I also post relevant articles, art, memes, and resources daily. Feel free to friend me. Hecate F-O-K. H-E-C-A-T-E F dot O-K-A-Y. You can also find me on Instagram. I have created a private Finding OK Facebook group for survivors. You are welcome there, and I hope you'll join us. Please take a minute to rate and review the podcast on whatever platform you use to help the podcast reach more listeners. Thank you so much for your continued support. Please share, subscribe, and donate if you can. This has been Finding OK. Black Lives Matter. Take care of yourself. Your fist. Keep on loving, keep on fighting, and hold on, and hold on. Hold on for your life. <laughs>